you love the most? Who are the people that you feel have had the biggest impact on you, at least that they, they, they have a tender place in your heart? They, there's something about them that, that compels you to love them, not just because of what they do, but because of who they are. What is it that compels you from the heart to treasure them so dearly? How would you describe their character? One of the people that I love the most is a man um, by the name of John Newton. And most people know him as the author of Amazing Grace, that famous hymn. But he was much more than that. He was a great lover of God and a great lover of God's people. And what particularly stands out to him is in his ministry, uh, he had an apparent lack of self-concern in comparison to the concern that he demonstrated towards other people. And this is most visibly demonstrated in the friendship he had with a man named William Cooper. William Cooper was a young man who struggled with severe depression his whole life. And Cooper's depression was so overwhelming that Newton took Cooper into his home for five months during one period and then 14 months during another. And Newton said of his of Cooper's stay at his house, he said, For nearly 12 years we were seldom separated for seven hours at a time. When we were awake and at home, the first six I passed daily admiring and aiming to imitate him. During the second six, I walked pensively with him in the valley of the shadow of death. One writer said about Newton's whole lifetime, He said, his house was an asylum for the perplexed and the afflicted. He was a model shepherd because he did whatever it took to care for the people under his care. And in Acts 20, Paul gives us another model of such selfish, sorry, selfless service, his own. This is his exhortation to the elders at the church of Ephesus beginning in verse 17. Now from Miletus, he, that's Paul, sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. And teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there. Except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value nor is precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I've received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves, And to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus 
how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word which he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. In Acts 20, again, Paul is giving another example of a selfless life, his own. And he's charging the elders of Ephesus to follow his example as he has presented it to them. He had lived with them for three years and served among them. Before we look at the particulars of the passage, I want to say a word about how we should apply this passage. You'll note it's it's an exhortation particularly to elders, the leaders of the church. And the responsibility that elders are given is to be examples to the rest of the flock. We see that in 1 Peter 5. Um, In Hebrews 13, they're told they will give an account to God for how they've cared for the flock. So that thus the instruction, Paul says, I have been an example to you, elders. Now you need to be an example to the rest of the flock. But that doesn't mean that it only applies to elders. Because as elders are called to be examples of Christ, ultimately, all of us are called to be followers of Christ. And so what Paul is calling the elders to is ultimately the same thing he's calling all of us to. It's just there's going to be a greater responsibility because... Um, of the responsibility that the elders have. There's more gravity upon them. Another thing to point out, too, is it it may come across that there's... Paul's talking a lot about himself, maybe a tone of self-righteousness. But what's going on here is Paul is saying, you've you've seen my life. I'm an example to you. You've watched me. So imagine... Uh, a similar example. Um, let's say Ty got sick one day and he couldn't go to work. And so he says, TJ, or he says, Chad, I can't come in, but you need to finish this roof on your own. You've seen the precision I work with. You see how I aim for excellence. You know what's expected of you. Now, Ty in that moment wouldn't be saying, hey, look how great I am. He's, he's saying, you know what's expected. Follow after this example. So Paul here isn't boasting in himself. He's just saying, you know what's expected. You've seen it from me. Now you take on that responsibility and care for the church of God. So this event in the book of Acts took place probably a year before the epistle of the Ephesians, which we just finished studying last week, was written. Paul had planted the church in Ephesus, and he had served there for three years. And he eventually leaves that church because of a riot that took place within the city. And it was a response to uh, people in the city stopped worshiping idols. They forsook idols, and they started worshiping God as they heard the gospel. And that upset a few people, particularly Demetrius the silversmith, who made a living off of creating idols. He was upset, and so this riot took place. And Paul had been planning on going to Jerusalem to visit the church there, and he had been looking for an opportune time. And with this riot, he thought that was an opportune time. So he left, and he he goes um, with the eventual goal of getting to Jerusalem. But before he goes to Jerusalem, he wants to go to other churches in Asia and minister to them. These were churches he had planted previously in Macedonia and Greece as well. And he wanted to find out how they were doing. And so he goes on a short-term team mission, visiting these churches and encouraging them. And now he's on his way back. That's where we're at in Acts 20. He's on his way back to passing through Ephesus or near Ephesus. He stops at Miletus, which is about 30 miles on the coast, about 30 miles from Ephesus. And he's going to stop there. He calls the elders to himself. And after this brief conversation, he's going to go on to Jerusalem. And he stops at Miletus instead of going all the way to Ephesus because he's in a hurry to get to Jerusalem before the Passover. And he still, he cares so much about the Ephesians and the elders. He wants to give a parting word to them. And that is what we have here. And so remember, 
in this passage, the purpose of Paul is to call the elders, not just to encourage them, but he's calling them to follow his example. And I'd summarize his example of uh, that of, of one of selflessness. I think you could summarize everything that Paul's saying here is care for the church of God by dying to yourself and caring for other people. Paul knew he wouldn't see these men again. And his great love for them prompts him to make this, take this responsibility on themselves. And the image that comes to my mind is, is one of those old westerns where the, 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 the father is maybe called away to go fight in the cavalry or to go on some you know, uh, cattle drive. And he calls his oldest son to himself and he says, boy, I'm leaving. It's your responsibility to take care of your mama and your brothers and your sisters. He hands him the gun and he walks away. I had a similar experience when I was about 10, I think. My dad had to depart and go on a trip or something. And I remember he called me to himself and he says, you know, I got to be going. And uh, you're going to have some extra responsibilities in case things happen. And he hands me a shovel. I'm thinking, what, what is it, Dad? Well, we had a cat that was about 16 years old that was kind of on its last leg. And uh, he said that there's a good chance Sammy's going to die while I'm gone. And that, I mean, as silly as that is, that was, that was a big deal to me. Because it was, it was as my dad was saying, the responsibility of being a man is now yours. And as a 10-year-old, that was huge. And it, it, I remembered it made an impact on me. Sammy didn't die, at least not immediately. Um, to probably everybody's chagrin, including his. Um, he was a very sickly cat. But um, that is the essence of what Paul's doing. He's saying the responsibility of caring for this church is now yours. I'm leaving. He says, you yourselves know the whole the, the way I lived the whole time I was among you. And this refers particularly to the way that Paul lived. Not so much in the time element, but the, the way, the manner of how he lived. He's saying, you guys know me. You've seen the, 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 the humility I served with, the trials that I went through, the tears. The, the first description he, says, he uses is humility. That's the same word he uses in Philippians chapter 2 to describe the humility of Christ, the mindset of Christ, who let go of his right to be worshipped as God. And he took on the form of a slave and allowed himself to be tortured and beaten for not his own sins, but the sins of his enemies. Humility is the kind of mindset that never asks, what's in it for me? Or what can I get out of this? What do I want? Instead, it's the, it's the mindset that asks, what do you need? And then does everything it can to meet those needs. He says, I served you with tears. Like Christ, Paul was no hard-hearted servant. He literally shed tears over the trials and distresses of the people in the church. And this shows that he was deeply concerned with what the people were going through. He didn't minister at a distance. Instead, he ministered by getting involved in each of the people's lives. And not just the elders, but all people who want to serve Christ should care deeply about the concerns of everybody else in the body. Because those who love Christ should love what Christ loves. And Christ loves all the members of the body of Christ. If we aren't moved by the troubles in one another's life, it demonstrates that we're probably too distant, maybe too proud. It says, I minister with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. The trials he's referring to are explained in Acts 19, verse 9, when he was teaching in the synagogues. He says, but when some became stubborn, these are some of the Jews that he would teach in the synagogues. He says, when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, they began speaking evil of the way before the congregation. And Paul withdrew from them and he took the disciples with him, reasoning daily now in the hall of Tyrannus. 
And this is the only instance we have in the book of Acts that describes this tension. But the verse lets us know that there's more going on than simple hardening. They were speaking evil of what Paul was teaching. And notice, though, that it wasn't their hard hearts that drove Paul to... I'm sorry, it was their hard hearts, not the plots which led Paul to remove his location. And Paul's point here to the Ephesian elders is that despite the fact that he faced great trials, great opposition, slander, maybe there was death threats, he kept on serving. He kept on proclaiming the full counsel of God, even though he faced this incredible opposition. And this demonstrated as well the extensiveness of his ministry. Not only did he preach the whole counsel of God, but he says, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, teaching you in public and from house to house. The word for shrink back is, is only used when fear is the motivating force. Paul had every reason to be afraid in this situation, but he did what he was called to anyway. He took advantage of every opportunity to declare the word of God, whether it was in public or whether it was in a house church meeting. The fact that he did his ministry from house to house demonstrated the sincere desire he had for the people in the church. He wanted to do whatever he could to help them. And this is in large part how he established such a deep connection with them. He says, testifying both to Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in Christ. Paul's point is, I I witness to everybody, all peoples, both Jews and Gentiles, because his goal as an apostle was to see every person everywhere throughout the world trust in Christ for their salvation. And he describes the gospel here, his proclamation of forgiveness, as repentance toward God. And this emphasizes the truth that if a person wants to put their faith in Christ, they need to understand the true nature of their problem. See, the gospel isn't simply a proclamation that you can be forgiven for your sins and saved from the wrath of God. Along with that forgiveness is you can be freed from your slavery to sin. It's a proclamation that you can repent. You don't have to love your sin anymore. You can have your heart changed through the power of Christ. One of the best ways, I think, to preach the gospel to somebody is, is simply to ask them, are you, grie- are you grieved over your sin? And, and really to tell them, that your issue is not the consequences of your sins, ultimately. Because we all hate the consequences of our sin. Depression, destruction. I mean, that's what sin does. It destroys people and relationships. We all hate that. But our problem, our root problem, isn't just the consequences. It's the fact that we love our sin. And what you can tell a person is your problem is that you love your sin. You love your lying. You love your idolatry. You love your pornography. You love your deception, your gossip. And when a person recognizes the evil of their sin and they hate their sin and they come to brokenhearted grief over it, that's when we can point them to the full salvation that's found in Christ. You can have forgiveness for that, but it comes with repentance. And Christ will give you the grace. If if you're broken over your sin, God gives you the grace to turn away from that and to follow after him. And this is what Paul wanted the elders of Ephesus to commit to continue doing. He continues, he says, And now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. Paul was going to Jerusalem fully expecting hardship. The Holy Spirit revealed to him earlier that his future was bleak as far as comfort and pleasure was considered. And Paul wasn't thwarted because he didn't have his own self-interest in mind. His focus was on fulfilling his ministry and preaching the gospel. Paul was reminded of his future trials every time he went into a city. Every. 
Every time he went into the city, he was reminded, you're going to Jerusalem? Hey, Paul, guess what's going to happen? Afflictions. Imprisonment. Just imagine if that was you. Just picture God calling you to some specific ministry. And God's put this burden on your heart, and then you start to talk to people. Every, every person you share this burden with, they say, Oh, do you know what you're getting into? Do you know how hard that's going to be? Imagine maybe God's calling you to a difficult ministry like adoption. And as you share this, because of this child's needs that you're adopting, they're telling you, your future is going to be hard. Would you stop and wonder at that point, is this God's will? Because everybody keeps telling me it's hard. It's going to be hard. Is that the question that goes off in your mind? Is, this, is God really calling me to this? And I just want to point out again that God's will usually does mean more difficulty. It doesn't usually mean more ease. Paul understood that. And despite his foreboding, he perseveres. And that's why he explains this in verse 24. I do not account my life of any value. Literally, he says, I do not consider my life worth a single word. I do not consider my life worth a single word. He's not interested in benefiting his own self, but in serving Christ and honoring him. If only I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. What drove Paul was not a desire to strengthen his life. It wasn't a desire to make a name for himself, for people to stand up and applaud him and say, well done, Paul, you are some great, significant person. He was only concerned with fulfilling his responsibility. And what really stands out to me in this verse is the word he uses for testify or witness. It's the word dia martu rasthai, the root word being marturo, the, the English translation martyr. It's what witness means. It's what it means to testify, to be a martyr. That's what a martyr is. A martyr is a, a, a person who witnesses that they have had a transforming work of grace in their life. They no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. And this word comes up four times in this little section. Only the book of John uses the word more times. And that's over 21 chapters. Paul's making a point to these elders. And it seems that the implication is his his proclamation was not simply his words. It was his life. A life that demonstrated he didn't do what he did for himself. He was dead. He didn't consider his life worth a word. He lived for Christ. In a sense, he wants to be a a witness of the grace of God that changes a man from being proud and self-centered to completely die to himself. Remember Saul. He stoned Stephen. He persecuted the church of God. He hated Christ. And then on the Damascus Road, grace changed him. And he no longer served himself. He counted it all as worthless, he says in Philippians 3. And consider the power of such selfless testimony. What would it look like in our lives? Such selflessness. If we were to live such a life of selfless devotion to Christ, people might ask us, why did you use your retirement to go to West Africa and build wells for the lost? We respond, because I'm dead. Maybe they ask, why did you give, give up your well-paying job in order to devote your life to being a mother to your kids, to spend more time with them? And you could respond, because I'm dead. 
Why did you adopt a special needs child? Don't you realize what it's going to cost you in emotions, in time, and in pain? And you could say, because I'm dead, but Christ lives in me. And he loves those with special needs. And what he loves, I love. And I no longer live for myself, but for him who died and rose again on my behalf. My life is not my own. It's not worth a single word. It's the same sort of witness of death to self that Paul is calling the elders of Ephesus to follow after. And it's what we're all called to follow after. As he says in Galatians 5.24, Now notice those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. The reason Paul is so passionate about the Ephesian elders getting this is this is the very thing that all Christians have been called to. And much more those who have been called to be examples. In verse 25, Paul transitions in his discourse to explain that this is exactly why he has called the elders of Ephesus to himself. Because he wants to exhort them one final time to follow his example and to guard themselves from following into compromise and selfish gain. He says, And now behold, I know that that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. So I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. He says, I'm innocent of the blood of all of you. His point is, That if any of you should be lost, I'm not responsible. I've fulfilled my task. And you'll note that Paul's confidence is before the Lord that he's done his job because he has preached the whole counsel of God. And the point is not to emphasize his own greatness, but again, emphasizing that he's leaving now. And the same responsibility that drove him to be faithful, to preach the whole counsel, all of the word of God is what it means. Now is the elder's responsibility. He says, pay pay careful attention to yourselves. And also the rest of the flock. You'll you'll note that word. It's the same word he used in Ephesians 6.18. To be alert. Stand guard. Watch out. Beware. The overseers are to be alert. The Holy Spirit has made you overseers. It describes the kind of work an elder performs. An elder oversees the flock, keeping watch so that none of the sheep are neglected or harmed. In fact, the word overseer, episkopos, where we get the word episcopal, the word itself means loving care and concern. That's the job. And note the reason he gives for why the elders need to watch their lives and the lives of God's people. This says so much about Christ and his concern for the church. Christ purchased the church with his own blood. That's the motivating factor. God, Christ has made you overseers. And remember, overseers, Christ bought the church with his blood. Paul wants the elders to recognize the great responsibility given to them. Christ died for the church. And his expectation is that those whom he appoints to oversee it would be willing to do the same. The story is told of a king whose prized horse was stolen by a rival lord. And greatly desiring it to be returned to him, he tasked a young knight with the responsibility of tracking the horse down and returning it at all costs. And after many years, the young knight tracked the thief back to his land and discovered that the young horse was suffering from severe neglect. It was starved, weak, and sickly. When the knight attempted to rescue the horse, however, he was caught. And the evil lord then stripped the knight, humiliated him, and had him tortured. And by an act of God's sovereign grace, the knight was able to escape. And when he escaped, he rescued the emaciated horse from the king. 
And when he returned that prized horse to the king, the king saw that the knights had scars all over his body. And he recognized the great cost it took in retrieving his valued possession. And the king was so overwhelmed with gratitude for the knight's faithfulness that he honored the knight by giving him the prized horse which he had rescued. And years later, that same knight was called away on another mission. And the knight was called another man to himself to oversee his horse while he was gone. That horse which he had paid so dearly for. And while the knight was away, the new overseer was negligent. Except for the times when he was riding around on the horse, showing it off to his friends, the horse was neglected. He fed it poorly. He allowed it to wander off unattended. Even when it got sick, he failed to call others to help. But worst of all, one evening, while the young overseer was asleep, a wolf crept into the stable and devoured the horse. When the knight returned, he asked the overseer about the condition of his horse, which he had suffered so greatly for. What do you think the overseer would have said? You might not be an elder, but if you are a believer, you also have responsibility to care for one another in the body of Christ. Because Christ has paid dearly for all of us. And again, if you love Christ, you should love and care for what he loves. Paul continues, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. See, Paul's worried that after he leaves them, and he's not going to see the church again, that these elders are going to fail in their oversight. And notice that the fierce wolves are going to enter in among the flock. In fact, Paul says, it's going to be from among yourselves. It's no outside threat. How is this going to happen? Paul says, through speaking twisted things. The point is that these men are going to twist the scriptures in order to defend some sort of personal agenda. Instead of using the scripture to dictate their convictions, they're going to twist the scripture to prove their own preconceived notions. So false teachers, that's what they do. They twist scripture in order to argue some sort of philosophy. Maybe it's a political agenda. Maybe it's a new way of doing church a model of education. Maybe it's just encouraging self-indulgence, like a health and wealth gospel. Or some pet doctrine, like some different eschatological end times viewpoint. But the point is, they, they, they twist the scriptures in order to prove their own issue. And so red flags should fly when an agenda becomes the issue in a person's heart, rather than caring for people. When a person becomes more concerned about proving their point versus teaching and encouraging and wanting to care for their brothers and sisters in Christ, that's a red flag. Because then the temptation becomes, okay, I've got to do whatever I can with the Word of God to fit this agenda. And that's what happened in the church of Ephesus. It's exactly what happened. Paul wrote to Timothy twice, the letters of First and Second Timothy, and encouraging Timothy about these false teachers that were in the midst of the church. Go ahead and flip to uh, 1 Timothy chapter 1. Paul writes this. 1 Timothy chapter 1, starting in verse 3. He says, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promotes speculations rather than stewardship from God that's by faith. Timothy, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. 
In contrast, certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they're saying or things which they make confident assertions. These are the same men that Paul was talking to at Ephesus, or one or two maybe. It doesn't stop even after that. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, starting at verse 14, Paul writes again to Timothy. And really, both these, chap- both these letters, 1 and 2 Timothy, are how to deal with false teachers. Paul says, remind them of these things, Timothy, and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who doesn't need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and talk will spread like gangrene. And he, he mentions two men in particular, Hymenaeus and Philetus. They have swerved from the truth, saying the resurrection has already happened. There's that eschatological viewpoint. And they're upsetting the faith of some. Paul foresee, foresaw this happening. And so even he tells the elders, be on guard for yourselves and for the flock, but watch yourselves. Watch yourselves that you don't twist the word of God for your own benefit. Verse 31, therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. Keep watch. It's the second time Paul has come up with this idea, watch out. The first time he, he plead, pled with the elders Watch out for the church because Christ's blood was spilt for the church. This time he says, watch out for the church on account of my tears. And the point's the same. The church is extremely valuable. It's worth the cost of blood and sweat and tears. And this is exactly what it should cost the faithful overseer. He says, and now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Notice that Paul doesn't entrust the care of the elders to themselves here. He says, to the word of grace. See, the same thing that the elders need to protect the church is the same thing they need to protect themselves. Paul is entrusting them to God and his word. If the elders stay faithful to the word of grace, then they will be faithful and receive the promised inheritance. And so will the rest of the church. Verse 33. Paul continues with describing his own example. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. The word covet just basically means to long for. In fact, it's the same word that he uses in 1 Timothy 3.1. The elders who desire the office of overseer or men that desire the office of overseer that same word desire it's this inner inclination paul says i have no desire for the the stuff of the church his lust was not for things or glory or influence what drove Paul, Paul's desire, again, was that all people everywhere throughout the world might come to know that salvation would be found in Christ. That's what drove him. And he proved this by not taking money from the churches that he served. He says, you yourselves know that these hands ministered to my own necessities. And not just my own, but to everybody else who was with me. This just shows how disinterested in money and stuff Paul was. He was so consumed by the grace of Christ, all things earthly were dead to him. It didn't compel him. That's not what he was looking for. And he explains another reason of what drove him. In verse 35, he loved the weak, just like Christ. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself 
he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. You see here, Paul wasn't afraid of hard work. Right? By working hard, we must help the weak. Paul did hard work, but he didn't use hard work to pad his life. He used the hard work and the dividends it paid in order to care for the weak. And notice he says, in all things I have shown you this. This is kind of the, you could, you could say, this is the overarching principle. I've showed you that in everything, the aim of you is to help the weak. See, Paul wasn't interested in strengthening his own self. He wasn't trying to strengthen his reputation. And we see that in his willingness to preach the whole counsel of God despite opposition. He wasn't interested in strengthening his body. He accepted a weak body. And we see that because he he worked night and day. He accepted a weak financial status. Providing for himself and others. And he even accepted a weak future. Intrepidly pursuing his course to Jerusalem despite the prophecy that it was going to lead to affliction. This stands out to me because we live in a culture that naturally gravitates towards the strong. Which we want to associate ourselves with those who are strong. And that's not all bad, especially if we're weak. We can be strengthened by those who are strong. But often the reason we're drawn to strong people is because we want to use their strength. To strengthen ourselves. And notice is just the opposite of what Paul is calling us to. And I, I think based upon this, you could say a very real test of spiritual maturity is how drawn to the weak you are. Are you drawn to strong people? Or are you drawn to those whom you can help? And, and I think by week, I think particularly here, he's talking about those who are poor in the context. But I think the reason he uses weak, he doesn't use poor. I think the reason he uses weak is, is, is to imply that it's in any sense intellectually weak, physically weak, socially weak. Are you drawn? Do you, do you look for ways, look for people? How can I help them? Find those on the fringe. And, and notice he said he's not calling us simply to be sympathetic to the weak, but drawn to them. Drawn to them. Another one of my heroes, George Mueller, maybe you've heard of him, was another example of such a person who was drawn to the weak. And the accomplishments of Mueller are significant. He built five large orphan houses and cared for, get this, 10,000, over 10,000 orphans in his life. When he started his orphan ministry in 1834, there were accommodations for 3,600 orphans in England. And twice that many children, under eight, were in prison. So to help you with the math, that's over 7,000 children under eight in prison how many of you have children under eight yeah imagine them in prison he did all this while he preached three times a week from 1830 to 1898 68 years at least 10,000 times and even at the age of 92 This is what he wrote. He says, I've been able every day and all the day to work and that with ease. He had prayed in millions of dollars for the orphans and never asked anyone for money directly. He never took a salary in the last 68 years of his ministry. I think he he took a salary for like three years. He never took it. He just prayed that God would provide and God did. And that's one of the amazing things about his biography is how God continued to do that. He never took out a loan and never went into debt. And neither he nor the orphans, again, the 10,000 orphans he cared for, ever went hungry. 
And listen to this description in the biography of the day of his funeral. Tens of thousands of people reverently stood along the route of the simple procession. Men left their workshops and offices. Women left their elegant homes or humble kitchens, all seeking to pay a last token of respect. A thousand children gathered for a service at the orphan house number three. They had now for a second time lost a father. And notice the similarity of Mueller's earthly departure with Paul's departure from Ephesus. Consider the emotional power and impact of a self-sacrificial life. When Paul had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. And they embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all. Because of the word he had spoken, he would never, they would not see his face again. They accompanied them to the ship. These are grown men weeping. It's so easy when a person leaves a church not to feel anything, except maybe disappointment. There should be weeping. I worked at my previous church twice as long as Paul worked at the church of Ephesus. And I wouldn't say there wasn't any emotion when Julie and I left, but it wasn't this. And, and this, verse, this stood out to me because it gave me pause. Why not? And, and that's not the fault of the church. I think it's, it's exposed. It, it makes me ask the question, did I not make more of an investment? Because what drew these people to Paul? Again, they're weeping, not because they're not going to have this great preacher in their midst anymore. They're weeping because they won't see his face. It's the relationship. And I think all the, our culture is just so... Uh, corporate, institutional. We, we, relationship isn't what characterizes Americans. It just, just gives us just such a, an example, again, for all of us, what, what we might expect, what we should expect the church to look like. There's something absolutely powerful when a person leads a selfless life. I recently read an article that when Mother Teresa gave a, uh, a speech at Harvard, a crowd filled with avowed atheists, the whole crowd stood up and gave her a standing ovation. Why? It's her example. She ministered to the poorest of the poor in Calcutta her whole life caused even an atheist, a crowd of atheists, to stand up and praise her. What, what is it that draws us about a Medal of Honor recipient, a man that, that, de- that defends his fellow soldiers by throwing himself upon a hand grenade? What moves us? What, what, what is it that draws us to such people? Missionaries who move from America in order to minister to the poorest of the poor in Haiti. We love those people. We may never have met them, but we love them. That's the power of a selfless life. Let us, grace and truth, let us live lives that unbelievers will simply find unbelievable. That we would be witnesses, martyrs of the death to self that has occurred in our own lives. Demonstrating we don't live for ourselves. We live for one another, and we live for the lost. Our life is not our own. It's been bought with a price. Let us be such a church. But again, we're not going to do this unless it's by the grace of God. So let's go before him and ask for such strength. We have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer us who live, but you who live in us. That is a true statement, God. 
that is doctrinally true. Help it to manifest itself. Help us not to excuse selfishness. We live in a world that excuses selfishness. And it is understandable in, a wor- in the world. But not for those who have been set free from it. It's hard to even know what this would look like. But I want it to happen. I want it to happen in my life. I want it to happen in our lives. That people would be drawn to this church. Not because there's great preaching. Not because there's great music. Not because we have a great building. Or even that people are nice. Not because we got this great children's ministry. Great events. Great organization. God... May people be drawn to this church because they see the treasure that is hidden in clay pots. They see your glory as it's lived out in broken lives. Give us grace to be such a people. To live lives that unbelievers will simply find unbelievable. And they'd be drawn to ask, where is your hope? Because I want that hope. And that way, no, Christ will come at a cost. Help us, help us to be there for one another when that cost takes its toll. That we wouldn't leave anyone behind. But we would find strength from one another and the strength that's in Christ. As, we, as we've learned in Ephesians, the power that rose Christ from the dead is within us. Make us living dead to self people. We ask these things in Christ's name because of his work. Yeah.